Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We all know the saying, if a tree falls in a forest and there's nobody around to hear it, does it actually make a sound? Well, in our world, we can say something like, if a forecast is perfect, but it doesn't get disseminated properly, did it do any good? There are still leaps and bounds that need to be made in the weather industry to bridge the gap between the research and communication when it comes to severe weather of all shapes and sizes. Today, we have Dr. Justin Sharp here on the show to discuss the work being done in the social sciences, both in the present and future. Dr. Sharp, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I, you know, we always start the question uh, questions the same way on this podcast. I usually ask, how'd you become a weather geek? So I'm going to put that question in front of you, but perhaps you're a behavioral science geek. So how'd you become a weather behavioral science geek mashup? Yeah, great question. The first thing I'll say, I was a geographer when I was 10 years old. Uh, we didn't have very many holidays when I was a kid, but when I was 10, my parents took me to, and the family, to Singapore, Malaysia, and Thailand. And I was in Thailand, and I saw kids who were begging on the streets for money and things like that. And they looked to me, to my 10-year-old eyes, as being heavy or fat. And I said to my mum, why are they begging for food and stuff like that? And she said, no, they're not fat. Their stomachs are distended. They're malnourished. And that blew my 10-year-old mind. And right at that point, I became a geographer, really. And I became fascinated with the world all around me. And so, you know, I, I went through life and I kind of, I, I got my undergraduate degree in environmental uh, studies. And then I trained as a teacher for many years. And when I was training as a teacher, I bought a seismograph from the United States that we used in the classrooms for me to teach about seismology in the classroom because my first science crush was actually geology. And we recorded the um, Indian Ocean earthquake and then the subsequent tsunami. And there was huge loss of life in that particular event. Uh, more than 200,000 people perished in that event. And then I started to produce materials for um, the, the classrooms and we produced a DVD to go out to, to younger kids as well. And then that got me interested, or rather the UN became interested in my work and then invited me to a few things. And I realized there was this whole world called disaster risk reduction out there. And I became fascinated with that. And then I went to a, a university open day and said, do you think I should do a master's or a PhD? And they said, well, what do you think you want to do? And so I just brain splurged at them for five minutes and they went, PhD, you need to do a PhD. <laughs> and so I started down that route and I got my PhD at King's College London um, in disaster risk reduction. And in that, I specialized in transformative learning. And that's a type of learning which basically says that what we all tend to do is we all tend to have automatic responses to things, automatic thoughts. And, you know, you might be doing this now. You might be making judgments about me. We do it all the time. We do it subconsciously a lot of the time. But that can actually get in the way of decision making. And that can also get in the way of, you know, making the right decisions at the right time. And so transformative learning says, OK, let's try and meet these things head on. Let's not do it in an aggressive way. Let's make 
help people to learn. And so I went out with um, community emergency response teams out in California. And then I also went and did the same sort of work with another group out there called Listos, which is a Spanish speaking. Uh, Listos means uh, ready in, in Spanish. Out there, and that's how I did my PhD. I finished my PhD. <laughs> I kind of I worked for the UN Disasters Agency for nine months or so, and I did some lecturing in, in a university in London in environmental policy and climate change. And then this job came up, and I was several jobs that I was looking at, and this one came up, and I'd be honest, I hadn't heard specifically of here or even the Weather Centre. And I was like, well, this looks like a really interesting job. So it was the social science lead for the Vortex Southeast project, and we can talk about that in a Absolutely. second. Absolutely. And that's how into it. And that's how I became much more of a weather geek because now I'm pretty much obsessed because you can't be in this building and not be because there are so many experts that you can go and talk to as well. You know, and that's what I love about my job is that synergy between the physical science and the social science. Yeah, no, we're talking with Dr. Justin Sharp. Let me give you a little bit of his background. He's a research scientist for the Cooperative Institute for Severe and High Impact Weather. And he actually professionally lives at the National Weather Center there in Norman, Oklahoma, with, which is significant hub of meteorological activity in this country. Um, uh, I, I guess I should say the whole thing. It's the Cooperative Institute for Severe and High Impact Weather Research and Operations at the University of Oklahoma. He's a member of their Behavioral Insights Unit. He's also the social science coordinator for Vortex Southeast. And I, trust me, we'll get all in the Vortex Southeast in the podcast, a very important field campaign related to tornadoes. And as you heard, he got his PhD in geography in King, at King's College in London. Uh, King's College is a, the location of one of my close colleagues, Sue Gramone, where at least she used to be there. I don't know if she is anymore. But we've talked about your sort of introduction to weather geekdom and sort of how you sort of found your way into this weather world. One of the new frontiers, and many of our listeners and viewers may understand this or may not, one of the new frontiers in meteorology is sort of the convergence of weather, climate, risk, and communication, and the so-called generic social sciences, though I hate to use that term because there are many types of social sciences from psychology to communication to sociology. But I want to dig right into your work before we get into Vortex Southeast. I want to sort of dig into your work with the Behavioral Insights team. There are three core sort of groups there, and I want to just kind of get your thoughts on communicating forecast uncertainty. What are the big challenges that remain there from your lens? Well, that's a huge question. I love that. That's a really big question. And, and I think that, so I think you can look at this in a couple of ways. I think that when we are actually, first of all, we have the forecast themselves. And I think that the technology around forecasting has changed over the last decade, but even over the last five years, and one of the things that happens here is that there's the production of new products all of the time. Um, you know, the probabilistic hazard information system, the facets system, the, the worn on forecast, all of these are kind of um, in themselves, you could look at them and say they're very technocratic because they're using technology to map where we think storms will go, as well as those great understandings of the physicists and atmospheric scientists here who really understand the environment and what's driving that at the time. But then 
one of the things that the behavioral insights do is help with the development of those products from a, a user experience perspective, from a how is an emergency manager going to find this useful? How would a meteorologist find this useful? How does that then translate to what broadcast meteorologists do with those things? So that is partially in the communication sphere itself and actually looking at what works, what doesn't. Um, but it's also then, as you sort of hint at and intimate at there, it's then, well, how do we then get that really into the hands of the public in a manner that they can understand and act on? And I think we've done fairly well with the understanding side of things. But where I think we still have challenges is in the action. And I think we can get into this a little bit more, but I do think there are layers of social vulnerability around the public that we need to understand. And at the moment, all we're tending to do, and I say we as a as social science kind of sphere within the weather community, is we've got very good at identifying what they are. The next challenge and the next phase is to help those publics adapt learn and have both the self-efficacy, which is a belief in your ability to do something, and the responsibility-efficacy, uh, which is the belief that the actions that you take will be meaningful. That's where I think the next steps are. And I think this is partially where the Behavioural Insights Unit come in, because as you rightly say, I think here we have sociologists, we have uh, geographers, psychologists, communications experts, and that sort of fits into that sphere. So I hope that answered the question because I think it's such a big question. It, it is, and for, for the for the listeners and the viewers, I mean, yeah, yeah. we see this really interesting sort of notion that weather forecasts, perhaps some in some people's mind, aren't as good as they're supposed to be, or that they fail at times. And what what I have noticed anecdotally as a scientist in this field is oftentimes the information was as intended from the meteorological side when we issue a cone of uncertainty from the hurricane center or when we issue a probabilistic rainfall forecast or a percent chance of rain or perhaps when we give information in a polygon or in a tornado watch or warning the information is as intended but there is a nuance there or a sort of a gap between that information and then how it's consumed. Um, I know there's a, we've had people on the show that talks about perhaps different colors that resonate with people better, or uh, can people actually find their county on a map and those types of things. So these gaps still exist. I want to sort of just get your insights on this. And this is not something that you've thought about in advance, but one of the things that I've been kind of tweeting about in recent, uh, months because we had a tornado here uh i'm sorry we had a storm here in the atlanta area in georgia it was straight line wind you know gust winds over 58 60 mile per hour there was no evidence that a tornado came through at all but people wanted it to be a tornado i mean there was this sort of it had to be a tornado it couldn't have been so i i've been sort of trying to understand this notion that severe storm warnings which are issued can include gust winds or hail but it's as though people really only act if it's a tornado warning. Have you seen sort of the right. evidence that there's a bias towards being a little more proactive for tornado warnings versus severe storm warnings? Well, I think partially that comes down to the communication. We communicate very clearly in a tornado. 
at now get to a safe room, get to a basement, get to an inside room or an interior bathroom. If you're in a mobile or manufactured home, try and leave now to go to a safe space. And I think we need to circle back around to that one as well, because I think that's in a way um, what we're doing, we're very clearly communicating there is a high risk to, uh, potential for loss of life, all of those things. And it is very, very clear. But then cycl- uh, circling back to your um, people want it to be a tornado. I think psychologically, if our car has beaten up, if our house has suffered losses, we want to say that the, the risk was so bad, that the storm was so bad that we couldn't maybe do something about it as well. So psychologically, I think there's a really interesting thing there. And this is only my opinion. I'm not backing this up right now with any evidence, right? This is just a a feeling that I get with things. So there's potential, you know, that that, that people want that. There's often, you know, when when people have, oh, my tornado was was an EF1, but I'm pretty sure it was a two. All of a sudden, many... I'm experts on on damage surveys, which are, you know, very complex things and also have very, you know, well-described metrics for measuring those things. Um, but then on the other hand, I've I've been out to um, two big tornadoes, um, not straight away after the event, it has to be said, but as social scientists, what we do here in the Bayville Insights Unit is um, I mentioned earlier on about Tornado Tales. Tornado Tales is this um, citizen science app that anybody can use at any time once there has been a tornado in their area. And it asks them things like, you know, what did they do in the warning? What did they do in the watch? Very similar questions to what you've just been asking here and how they received that information, but also how safe they felt in certain structures. Now, that to say is a good piece of citizen science. And we're iterating on the questions, trying to make that better now. However, what we also do is we go into the field. And so we went into Mayfield, Kentucky and the Quad State Tornado and we talked with people and asked those questions. And when you're there and you're looking someone in the eye, you get a sense of what they're feeling. You get a sense if they're holding something back and you can say, oh, tell me more about that. Or this is very interesting. And so I did that there and where I saw the the four EF4 damage there. And then I've also been recently to Rolling Fork in Mississippi. And that damage was incredible and was probably the worst damage I've ever seen. And that area was certainly very much devastated. And of course, there are people, you know, wanting that to be an ES5 because the devastation was so quick. You also talked about something else that I think is fascinating. We give the forecast as intended. In that particular event, you could see that the forecast was given, that warnings were given. But every single person I interviewed didn't get that. It didn't get into their hands for a whatever re- series of reasons. A weir alert didn't go off on their uh, their phone. They got that through an informal network of warning. Friends, family said, there's a tornado on the ground because they were paying attention maybe, do you know what I mean, to the TV news that night, those sorts of things. So it's very, very interesting where we think our warning continuum is and how it goes from the formal and then into the informal. And the, sometimes the informal saves people's lives. And that's really interesting space there as well. So there is so many things to unpack with these things and we're just learning these things and it's only by going into the field and communicating with people and then analysing what they've said that we get a much better picture of what people are feeling about things and I think one of them is that psychology there of like, well, my storm is more powerful than than this storm. Um, And I don't know whether that's related also to people's um, other 
things about insurance maybe or things like that. I mean, so, I mean, you've heard of the San Francisco earthquake of 1906, right? Everyone's heard of the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. But it's also often called the San Francisco earthquake and fire. And I'm sure you've heard of that as well. But do you know why it became the San Francisco fire? Probably because of insurance claims, I imagine. In what it was, people didn't have earthquake insurance, right. but they had fire insurance. Sure, sure. And so it was informal, oh dear, it's got up in the flames. Now, this, by the way, I'm not making a direct comparison at all with these people at all. But I'm saying is that this psychology and this, uh, this feeling of loss and how people process that and how we actually look at these things, there's probably something in there that is meaningful to people and it helps them to cope with what is a severe event and hopefully and you do hope this a once in a lifetime event as well now when we come back i'm going to ask dr sharp more about his involvement with vortex southeast after the break have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad free Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Justin Sharp, who is with uh, the Center Cooperative Institute, I should say, for Severe and High Impact Weather Research and Operations. I used to know it as SIMS, but I changed its name uh, recently. So those of us that have been around this for a while still have a tendency to want to call it SIMS, but he certainly works at the intersections of social sciences and weather. And you mentioned early on about Vortex Southeast, you're the social sciences coordinator. So give our listeners a little 101 of what Vortex Southeast is and then what your role is in the social sciences. Yeah, so Vortex has had many carnations and goes back quite a few years, but 
predominantly it was the verification of the rotation of tornadoes. And initially it started out very much as a sort of a physical science program, but over time the social sciences have been included and have become much more important. And so what we do is we fund research both in the physical sciences and the social sciences. So part of my role is to know what's going on within the social sciences and, you know, be up on the literature and be up on, you know, what's been going on and what research has been funded and what needs to be funded next and to try and understand where the gaps lay okay those those sorts of things so that's pretty much uh, all there is there are field campaigns that go out both uh, i said predominantly in the physical sciences side but also in the social sciences side and uh, you know we, we will look at things such as the warning continuum what happens between the watch and the warning um, those sorts of things we're all very interested in, in those things but also like I said social vulnerability so you know the impact of poverty on people the impact you know because <laughs> that impacts your wages that impacts maybe if you do or don't have insurance that impacts whether you're in a mobile or manufactured home or not whether you have a car that is reliable or not and then we then sort of do a mic drop almost in a way and say, okay, get out of your mobile home now. The warnings in your area, it's, you know, threat of life. And you're like, where am I going? And unfortunately, one of the things I've learned over the past few years is the number of people that have perished in mobile manufactured homes who have gone to the bathroom in that because they know in their heads, they've been paying attention that you go to that interior most part of, of a building. But, you know, the homes are just too small and and, and don't stand up very well to, to the forces on them. And anyway, so that's that's pretty much what we've, we've been, been looking at. And, uh, you know, going forward, that's what we continue to do. One of the things that I get to do is is, you know, um, look through and um, help set up with my colleagues the notice of funding opportunities, uh, which are basically saying, you know, this is what we think we're interested in right now. Please forward your your proposal to this. And then we set up a committee who then uh, look at all of those and decide what gets funded and what doesn't. And this is kind of an insight into to the world of us as researchers in terms of how we make progress with research. Uh, calls for proposals, people propose their best ideas, some get funded, and then the work's done. And Vortex Southeast, as, as Dr. Sharp mentioned, is a continuum of a series of Vortex experiments. Uh, Vortex Southeast cuts sort of moved into the Southeast, my part of the world, if you will, being here in Georgia, because there's research that, there are a couple of reasons. There's research that suggests we're seeing an uptick in the frequency of tornadic storms in the Southeast. It's a highly vulnerable community in terms of uh, populations living in mobile homes, um, pre-manufactured homes, communities of color, uh, and so forth. Uh, so, And, you know, it's a very different aspect to our storms here. We get a lot of these what we call quasi-linear convective systems, or QLCSs. They tend to be very nocturnal. Uh, it's not as flat and open as the Great Plains region. So there are just qu quite a few more vulnerabilities. So Vortex Southeast has really been digging into that from the standpoint. I wanted to circle back one of our producers in, in the production notes. Actually, I wanted to circle back quickly to the uncertainty topic for a moment because he asked, uh, do you think when we convey information about warnings, should we have uncertainty coupled to that information? For example, I was reading a hurricane uh, discussion here recently, and it was talking about the likelihood of a hurricane uh, becoming stronger, perhaps rapidly intensifying. And I, it said this is as a 70% confidence in that state. Can we start to really integrate that into tornado and severe warnings? I mean, Capital Gang, uh, Weather Gang in the Washington Post, they put a boom or bust 
estimate on their snow forecast in the wintertime. They said, well, this is the forecast, but then this is a chance that it'll be a boom or a bust. So what are your thoughts there? I think that's a very interesting development in things. And I think that what happens there, I think there's several things here. So we're a society, and as a society, there are lots of different products out there as well. And, of course, part of that product development is kind of um, each TV station wants to kind of show, hey, we've got the best graphics. We've got the best way of communicating risk. And I'm not saying that they do or don't, by the way. I'm just saying that this, this very competitive market but I want to circle back to something that you said. I, I would like to hear from you, and I think this is really great for your listeners as well. What does it mean by probability and how do we communicate those things to the public in a way that they go, oh, I get it, I understand, because you very rightly said, well, hang on, but I thought this would happen and then didn't happen. We had a 60% chance of this and then nothing happened. So I'm sorry I to turn it back on you, and if you've done That's this before... True. But I think that this is a really great opportunity to have a conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's a question. You know, I've experienced this quite often. I mean, when we say a 20% chance of rainfall, I mean, I think to some people that essentially means it's not going to rain. And so if it does rain, well, like there said, it was a 20% chance of rainfall and it rained. See, they don't know what they're talking about. When in fact, if you look at sort of what that really means, I mean, it wasn't a zero percent chance of rain. So the forecast that you it rained somewhere in the in the forecast area of that forecast office with some degree of confidence. You know, people look at the cone of uncertainty with a hurricane and think that if it doesn't go down the center of the cone, it was a bad forecast. But what it actually means is there's a 66 percent chance that the center of that hurricane can be anywhere in that cone. But you're right. We don't convey that information. And candidly, I use my wife as a litmus test. She is a very intelligent person, but she doesn't want the nuances of all of that. She just wants to know what's going to happen and and, and how much information she can use to gauge whether we know what we're talking about. So I, I think you do hit on something. I, I do find what, for example, our good friends at the Capital Weather Gang at the Washington Post does very useful. And if you go and look this winter at their snow forecast that they issue, they have the percent chance that it's going to be three to six inches. But then on the top of that, they'll have like the chances that it might be more than that. And then their confidence that it could be less than that. I think it's I, I, from what I've seen anecdotally, uh, people have resonated with what they do there. So I think it's a it's a potential um, step forward in how we communicate risk and uncertainty. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. I mean, so, I mean, like to, to, to that end as well from a, how does this impact society? How do we improve things for those most vulnerable populations? I, I think one of the things that we're starting to look at is the kind of the, the, the gap between the watch and the warning and also when watches are, are issued. So, um, you know, all of these things go back to the 1970s, I think, actually, and they've been iterated on ever so slightly over the years. But as you know, a tornado watch can go out, you know, for a long period of time. You know, um, I, I've talked to people of that, oh, it's six or seven hours, that sort of thing. So, well, what do you do in that time? What is right. useful when you're if your life. So what I've been talking with my colleagues with for a number of months now, probably a number of years is, okay, well, we need to somehow transition that watch to warning. So we need to then maybe update the watches and say, okay, this was the big area. Now here's the smaller area. Now we've got this. And these counties are really starting to be in play. 
And so you definitely need to be, this is the time that if you are in a mobile manufactured home, you've got neighbours nearby or families nearby, you've got a better structure, please try and leave now because actually waiting for that warning is too late. And that's what I mean by the mic drop. You know, if you've got a 15-minute warning and it says get out of the... That's, that's just not enough time. So again, it's partially communication and it's partially understanding the challenges that, that, that are out there as well. For, for, for a long time, I, I used to hear this kind of idea of uh, public complacency towards tornadoes and, and things like that. And, and the research over the years has now changed that and said, you know what, it's not such a big thing as we thought it was. And actually, people who are overwarned because this is the metrics that they were using, uh, false alarm ratios and probability of detection, those sorts of things. People who were overwarned went, you know what, I just makes me realize that perhaps I need to pay more attention to weather because maybe the next one will hit me. And so I always prepare because what if I lost? I've, you know, I've, I've made sure the closet's cleaned out, you know, for, for, for if that hits. And I think that's a really healthy perspective. And if we can encourage more people to be doing that as well, that's useful. And if we can find examples also of when people have done that and it saved their lives, oh, wow, you know, that's, that's, that, that's the, the moment, isn't it? You know, that's, that's what we're really looking for. Yeah. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about some of the things that that's going on in Dr. Sharp's unit. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm talking with Dr. Justin Sharp, and I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard at the University of Georgia. Now, you're launching an innovative collaboration with IBM Watson to expand data collection to include real-time broadcast data. Tell us a little bit about that. Ooh, well, I'd like to, but I don't think I can speak to that. No, no, it's not because it's out of my direct expertise right now so i don't want to say something and someone said no that's completely wrong okay, end well, of the stick well, well, let me hey. come back to then an area that i think you do know something about uh which is vulnerability we've been talking about uh, vulnerability and uh what makes people more or less vulnerable to some of these sort of severe weather uh, events that we experience uh Talk about sort of vulnerability, economic valuation of tornado warning improvements and so forth. Uh, that's another sort of convergence within the field, if you will, because we know that there's economic value in forecasts. And we also know that there are people on the other end of these forecasts that just in, have inherent vulnerabilities. Say a little bit more about those. Yeah. I mean, a couple of things. I think. One, have inherent vulnerabilities. And two, the impacts of those vulnerabilities are far more keenly uh, felt when a tornado occurs. So, you know, that the loss is more keenly felt. And I, I'm not talking here necessarily about loss of life or injury, but also that property loss as well. It's harder to get back on your feet. Um, you know, I've been out in the field and I, I've talked with folk who you wouldn't necessarily feel are as vulnerable that um, they first appear and then the tornado completely destroys their property. And I interviewed um, someone and she was elderly and they'd lost everything. And they survived by going elsewhere. And I'm so pleased that I could have that conversation with them. And then they talked to me about their insurance. And their insurance was our house was covered for X. And we, you know, have got that. The insurance were fine. They said, yeah, we will pay out X. But what happened straight after 
um, a, a big shock, a disaster, is that you get economic shocks that go with that. So I'll bring it back around to that economic question right now. And that economic shock does several things. The cost of labor goes up. The cost of products goes up. The you know your nail cost of nails goes up. Cost of timber goes up. Everything goes up, and you sit in a disaster inflationary bubble during that time period. And there is a gap between what insurance pays and what actually things cost during that time. And I, I want to show how that underpins further vulnerabilities because when I talked to that person. I said, well, what are you going to do? I will just stick a double wide on here. So in other words, they were going to go from, they had their home, which was a site built home. And now they were going to go to a cheaper manufactured home, which would not have withstood those forces as well. And so vulnerabilities also create vulnerabilities. And so we've got this societal kind of problem here as well, which does extend into, you know, like you say, yes, there are economic gains for forecasting, definitely, um, but we need to improve what we're doing there. And how do we make our warnings and watches more equitable for all? I think that's I think that's a really interesting thing. And rolling fork for me was something that really stuck in my mind that wasn't necessarily equitable. And through other work we've done as well, so we worked work down and we did some survey work down in Idabel in southeastern Oklahoma that was in a radar gap there. And I'm coming up at the National Weather Association uh, next week. I'm uh, giving a talk on that about how the public gap field radar and gap field emergency response and you know all of these things and although that is beautiful to hear and wonderful to hear that people care about their communities so much that they do this that they go and learn that expertise we don't have redundancies for when that person is ill or on holiday or do you know what i mean those things whereas in the weather service you know we have shifts right there are shifts you come off a shift someone goes on a shift you know that that sort of thing there are redundancies in place so how do we then create and help people to close those redundancies in their communities as well so there, there's there's a lot there with that um so I think what we do, we define social vulnerabilities very well. We talk about poverty, we talk about structure, we talk about all those things. We have metrics for that. There is the social vulnerability index developed by the, the CDC. But clicking on a button and saying that's a vulnerable population isn't the same as knowing that population, talking to that population and doing that. So one of the things that we've been doing here for the past three years is um, – a program with Mississippi Alabama Sea Grant because when I first came on, I was like, okay, we've got all this Vortex uh, Southeast. And by the way, we're now Vortex USA, just to let you know that's actually changed in Congress. So just, but we work in the oh, Southeast. Great, great. But we're, we're, yes, that's something that's that, that sort of changed over the last year or two. So I just wanted to say that so, so people don't <laughs> get mad breaking, with me. Breaking news here on Weather Geeks because that's certainly something I wasn't familiar with. And I'm usually okay. having my ear to the ground. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. So but that's, that, that's I'm, I'm glad you do know that. But one of the things that we did, I, I said, look, we've got all this information. As scientists, this information is useful. As academics, it's useful. How is it useful to the public? How, how are we not, you know, returning our research back to the public? Because what I didn't want to be is kind of, you know, go parachute into communities, take all the information from them, and then they never hear from us again because it doesn't build trust. And then if we're asking those same people to then trust the same people that have come out there because they perceive us often to be the government even if we're not the government like you know we're academics and researchers we work alongside federal agencies 
but we're sort of broad brushed hard with you're the government. And so trust is really, really important there. And so we've had this project that what we've been doing is we've been going out to communities, going out into communities where people have got mobile manufactured homes and talking with them, but also running education and learning projects in schools, but also in libraries where we developed a very small, severe weather curriculum that tells people how to prepare, what to do, how to turn on all your alerts on your phones, how to get multiple things, how to do CPR, how to use a chainsaw properly after, because, you know, I've seen people in flip-flops trying to use a chainsaw after disasters and it just, they go, ah, and actually a lot of injuries occur post-disaster in the cleanup phase and people are rightly trying to help their neighbours, but it's useful that they're also well-trained. So we've been trying to do this to return that to the communities but it's also a dialogue. And then we say, look, we've done this. We think this would help you this way and this way. But if the community then comes back and goes, well, that's useful and that's useful, but this is, no, that's still not helping me. We need to find out what those gaps are. And maybe that's a research gap, but maybe that's also a community and local government gap. And so by bringing all these groups together, the organisations and the public from a bottom-up approach, we actually equip people with the right information and the right skills to make those differences and reduce those vulnerabilities over time. So that's something that you know I'm very passionate about. I'm sure you can tell I came alive then, um, but it's something that I think is, um, you know, it drives me every single day. It's why I get up. It's why I have to do my job. Yeah, it's a, it's very important. It certainly, sort of overlaps with some of the, my own research and my own scholarly world as well. So I, I resonate with your passion there. I've, I've written in the past in Forbes about radar gaps in the the, the southeast, particularly in some uh, communities of color as well. So, very passionate about this as well. While I'm looking at the time, we've we've run up against it. So, uh, and then that's what tends to happen when we have just such stimulating guests and conversations. So, Dr. Sharp, thank you so much. Where where can people either find you in social media or your program uh, in social media or on the web? Yes, so um, that's thing. So I, I partially worked for the Cooperative Institute for Severe and High Impact Weather Research and Operations, and I did that with even a breath. And yeah, that, which so you can find this at, uh, and that's at uh, C I W R O and then underscore. I think the other one was taken, uh, and also at uh, Noah. NSSL, which is the NOAA National Severe Storms Laboratory. Uh, my personal um, sort of, uh, handle on Twitter is at edu, the number four DRR. So it's Education for Disaster Risk Reduction because I run a website to do with that. Um, so good. yeah, there's that. I think one thing I would say is uh, please do share uh, with your listeners uh, about tornado tales and encourage them to take that when when there have been storms wherever they are in the country because that really helps us inform um, you know at, at what we're doing with the watches and warnings and just to finish on one example someone did that on a live TV we got 90 reports in 20 minutes that told us so much about how people received interpreted acted on storm warnings, which was amazing to us as scientists. Thank you. We, we will certainly get that out there uh, when this airs, and uh, we'll also make sure to tweet it as well. Dr. Sharp, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you very much, family. It's been a pleasure. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? 
Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.